Are you listening? Damn. Uh. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. Uh. I'm Emery Hunt, the czar of the playbook, and welcome to another edition of Direct Snap. And this is episode six of Direct Snap, and we're going to talk about what's important by position. It's going to be called why blank is important for blank. So why, let's say, carrying the football a certain way is important for a running back. But as always, you can hit us up on Twitter at FBallGamePlan. I'm also on Instagram and Vine under the Football Game Plan handle. We're also on Facebook, Football Game Plan. Everything is Football Game Plan, guys. So if you Google Football Game Plan, You'll find us everywhere, but also hit us up and subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash football game plan. And if you miss any one of our podcasts, I don't know why you would do that sort of a thing, but you can find these podcasts archived on our website at footballgameplan.com slash podcast. And if you're not familiar with Direct Snap, this is a show where we address controversial football topics that many want to either avoid completely or tap dance around. But today we're going to break down some scouting stuff like we did last week. We got a lot of positive feedback from all of our shows, but last week in particular, we're going to talk more about scouting and what to look for in these prospects. But we're going to kick this thing off by answering some Twitter questions that we got from the fans this past Sunday. And the first question comes from at value football, value football dash Dennis. He asked the question, why are the Vikings continuing to play shotgun? It seems a little bit weird. That's a great question because when you have a guy like Adrian Peterson who looked phenomenal yesterday versus the Denver Broncos, you want him going downhill. Now, in the shotgun, you kind of limit the downhill approach of your running game unless you're in the pistol. Now, if they want to have a happy medium like the Broncos did yesterday like they showed during the game, you want to go to more of a pistol formation. But if I'm the Vikings, I'm keeping it simple. I'm lining Teddy Bridgewater up under center, doing a lot of what he did at Louisville handing the football off to Adrian Peterson, operating off play action, allow him to drop back those three, five, and sometimes seven-step drops and let him read the field and deliver the football. I wouldn't get too cute with the offensive approach. I think the Vikings have more than enough offensive talent to get the job done. They have to make sure they don't get overly creative, don't get cute, and just be effective and efficient with what they do. One guy in particular I think needs to be on the field is Cordero Patterson. He's a playmaker. He's an instant threat when he has the football in his hands. Find ways to get him the football on offense. I think that opens up the entire field for the Vikings with Stephon Diggs. You have Adrian Peterson. You have good tight end play. You know, So I think the Vikings do have a tremendous offense, but don't get cute. Just be efficient, effective, and I think ultimately what you'll see is more wins by this Vikings football team as a result. Thanks for the question, Value Football. The next question comes from at MKB9198. Caleb Michael asked the question, talk about how Ruffin McNeil of East Carolina is a Power 5 coach. I'm a big fan of Ruffin McNeil and what he brings to the table coaching-wise. You go to a mid-major program in East Carolina that has been known for their offense, and he's a defensive guy. And every year, that defense does a lot of great things from a pressure standpoint. He's 40-29 and 29 in his East Carolina career. He has bought these guys to four bowl games. They only won one, uh, and that was a before Brady's Bowl back in 2013. Ironically, his best season when they went 10-3. and three. But I do think he does a great job. You know, he's sandwiched in between NC State and in North Carolina. So he has a tough job to recruit, but he's constantly getting talent. They've only had one losing season where they went five and seven under his uh, 
tutelage, but overall, he's a really good coach. I think he definitely is one guy that should get a lot more consideration for these Power 5 jobs. But when you look at what he brings to the table for East Carolina, and a lot of times coaches may just be content on where they are because think about it. If he was to go to, let's say, a Texas or a Notre Dame or something like that or Florida, then the pressure and the stakes are are up, you know, will be in, enhanced. And now it, not, now it doesn't become about football. At East Carolina, he can fly underneath underneath the radar, just be all about ball, put out a consistent product, a consistent winner. They now move into a new conference, the American Athletic Conference, which is a very strong conference this year. And I think sometimes you just got to look at where you are and realize this may be the best spot to do what I want to do. You know, if you ultimately just want to coach football and not have to worry about boosters, the media scrutiny, and just really be about what's on the field and bringing, bringing players in and uh, you know, coaching guys up and mentoring guys, then he's in a great spot because I think they'll give him the key to the city, you know, in uh, Greensboro, North Carolina, because of what he does with this football program. I mean, he has success in Conference USA. His conference records are always excellent. He's a, He has a winning conference record in two separate conferences. He's, what, 28 and 14 in both Conference USA and also in the American Athletic uh, conference. So I think he's just in a great spot. And if I were him, I would just try to build East Carolina into what people saw with Boise State, with what people see down in Louisiana with the Raging Cajuns. Just make East Carolina the place to be in a place that a lot of student athletes will want to go. And thank you for that question, Caleb. The next question or comment, so to speak, comes from John D. Beckler at J.D. Beckler. Follow him on Twitter. Good guy. He says, I feel as though you look like Mark Ingram and Pats. Feel free to discuss that one. Laugh out loud. That's true. I get that a lot from my friends and, and family. I remember one time I was just sitting uh, on the couch just watching the Heisman Trophy presentation when Ingram won the Heisman Trophy. And at the time, the company I worked for, uh, my boss shot me a text message. She was like, hey, did you just win the Heisman Trophy? And I thought that was hilarious. So, yes, I do look like Mark Ingram, partly because we're built the same way. We're the same size. We have the same, I want to say, probably dark hair, goatee, thick eyebrows. That's all it is. So anytime I'm in Louisiana or in New Orleans, so to speak, I have to watch it because I get double looks, just like I was I was at Villanova um, two weeks ago on campus, five minutes, and everybody thought I was um, Brian Westbrook. So, it goes with the territory when, you, when you're built like a running back. It's hard for me to get rid of that body unless I just completely stop working out. But that's not going to happen because I still got to stay in football shape. You never know when you might have to, you know, when a game may kick off and you might have to be ready, you know. Teams, a lot of teams around here right now need running backs. See, here I am in good running back shape. I can give them about 10 to 15 carries a game. So I got to make sure I, I stay in shape. You never know. 34 years old, still got a lot left to give. But thanks for that question or comment, John D. And uh, when we come back, we're going to take a short break and come back and jump right to, right into our topic, why blank is important for blank. Again, like why a certain attribute is important for a specific position in football. I can't wait to discuss this because there's a lot of nuance that's involved in the game. But we'll be back after this quick commercial break. <laughs> Hello? Hey, what's up, dude? Ain't nothing watching Geno Smith struggle in this blizzard. Yeah, I 
know it's a blizzard, man. And but he threw two touchdowns and no intercepts, but that was gimmick. I'm not cutting him any slack because he's playing in the blizzard. Listen, let's say he gets drafted by the Miami Dolphins and they're playing in the AFC Championship game, but for some reason it has to get moved to Saskatchewan. You ever been to Saskatchewan in January? You gotta make these throws, these type of throws in the blizzard. That's the difference between a championship and being the first pick in the draft. He has to make these passes. <laughs> Welcome back to Direct Snap. I love those commercials, man. I got to get back in the lab and create some more commercials. And that was poking fun at what I heard this weekend uh, while I was at Holy Cross. It was so interesting to hear a guy just blatantly just go above and beyond his, you know, above and beyond the call of duty to talk about a guy that wasn't even playing in the game. I guess he was talking about the AFC East and he brought up Geno Smith. He was like, man, Geno Smith, I'm glad he's not playing. He sucks. I knew he sucked after that game versus Syracuse. I'm thinking in my head, like, wasn't it a blizzard in that damn game? But this is what I don't get, man. Like, why do some quarterbacks get the benefit of the doubt? You know, like, it could be a hot day, and people are like, well, you know, he threw three in the sets, but, you know, it was a hot day. You know, he probably was dehydrated. But certain quarterbacks – you know, it could be a it was a blizzard versus Syracuse, and he still threw two touchdown passes and no interceptions. Silly, just ridiculous. But I digress. Let's jump into today's topic: why blank is important for blank. And this is interesting because when you're looking at certain positions, there's always there's always little things that I look for that I think are important. You know, and it's, it, a lot of times, it's, it's those little things that separate a good football player from a bad one or a player from a prospect. Um, let's start with the quarterback position and, and why pocket awareness or just awareness in general matters for a quarterback. And that's broken down to like five different subcategories I have. You know, you have pocket awareness. And you see this a lot. Let's start with Ryan Tannehill. You see a guy in Ryan Tannehill and also Alex Smith that will get themselves sacked a lot. Pocket awareness is key. Not every protection will be the best protection ever. Not every offensive lineman will just shatter the defender in front of him. You have to be able to move within that tackle-to-tackle box, you know, stepping up, stepping back, stepping to the side to deliver the football. So pocket awareness is is huge for a quarterback. And when you see guys that don't have it, it's evident. And a lot of people want to, you know, attribute that to the offensive line. And again, every time you see a sack, it's not necessarily the O-line is blocking. You may have a situation where the quarterback just doesn't have a good feel for the pressure around him and doesn't step up or doesn't step back and avoid pressure that's coming right down the, the uh, A and B gap. Um, he may not step to the side. He may not feel that backside pressure on his shoulder. You have to have a good sense of, quote-unquote, awareness for a quarterback. You see some guys, let's say like a an Aaron Rodgers, that has great pocket awareness. Tom Brady has great pocket awareness. Peyton Manning used to, you know, but now Peyton Manning's at the age where he's going to either take the sack and sack himself or throw the football quickly. But you see guys that have very good pocket awareness and guys that don't have very good pocket awareness. So if you see that when you're looking at a quarterback from an evaluation standpoint, that's huge, especially in my book. You have to be able to feel that pressure. You also have to have situational awareness. You know, you see quarterbacks – in third and five or third and seven, throw the ball two yards. I can understand if you're throwing it two yards, if you have a guy on a crossing route, 
you know, and he's running away from man coverage and he's going to have a chance to maybe outrun that defender to the first down marker. But you also have to have that, that wherewithal as a quarterback to not throw that short pass versus zone coverage. Or if you see a cornerback a sitting inside of a receiver, you have to have the wherewithal to throw it on the outside. You know, and that's part of throwing awareness. And I'm going to get to that in a second. But back to the situational awareness part. If it's third and five, you're down by four. You're on a plus 40. You need this first down. Take the easy first down. Do not try to be a hero and get it all in one spot. Let's go back, I want to say maybe two weeks ago, with uh, Luke McCown versus the Carolina Panthers and the game-clinching interception he threw to Josh Norman. If you look back at the play, I want to say it was third down, third and five. Right at the bottom of the screen, the, re- the running back is standing right there with the defender 20 yards away from him. He's right there for the first down. There's no reason to take the shot to the end zone and go for the game winner right then and there when you just needed the first down to get more chances to make that throw into the end zone. Um, so that's a situation where you look at someone's situational awareness and not understand it. And this is the biggest, I want to say this was the biggest uh, example of that. You go back to when Blaine Gabbert was coming out of, of college when you know he was being billed as the top pick. And this was in the bowl game versus Iowa. You know, it was, I want to say it was third down. And Missouri had the lead. They were up by five. Third down, two and a half, maybe three minutes left in the game. On the 50-yard line. So you got the lead. You're up by five. You're on a 50-yard line. And you got two and a half to maybe three minutes left in the game. There was no pressure coming from Iowa. Yet, Blaine Gabbert bailed out of a clean pocket, rolled to the right, and threw an interception to a guy standing six yards in front of him. Threw it right to the defensive back, who was Micah Hyde, who then, in turn, ran it back for the game-winning touchdown. So that's where situational awareness matters for quarterback. You have to understand that. You have to be able to be situationally aware. That's red zone. That's down in distance. That's four-minute offense. If you're not situationally aware, I can't win with you as a quarterback. And we talked about throwing awareness earlier You know, in this segment. You look at throwing awareness. And I mentioned, like, if a guy is sitting inside, you want to put that football on the outside. That matters. you know. Or, okay, if I throw this football late, and you saw this a lot on Saturday and Sunday this past week. If I throw this football late, my receiver would die on sight. He will get blown up. Or as my old strength coach used to say, blow it up. He'll get blowed up over the middle of the field. Shout out to Emma Smith. So when you look at throwing awareness, you have to be aware of what's around the receiver. Because otherwise, you're going to see receivers not want to go that extra mile and catch the football because you're putting them in harm's way. So your throwing awareness has to be on point because if, if, if it's not, then that affects your entire passing game and also running awareness. And this is the difference between, and, you know, a lot of people want to lump every quarterback with mobility in the same, you know, basket, put them in the same basket or lump them in the same category. But there's a difference. There's a difference when Michael Vick ran. There's a difference when RG3 runs. And there's a difference when you look at juxtaposed to a guy like Cam Newton, Vince Young, Aaron Rodgers, Steve Young, Russell Wilson. Those guys run smart. Michael Vick, uh, RG3, Christian Ponder, 
they run reckless, and that's why they always get injured or banged up. So your running awareness, you have to understand, you're the guy that controls the football on each and every play. Your team needs you. So you can't take these big shots. Situationally, you can. If it's between you and the goal line and you see a defensive back that you feel as though you can run over, yes, take that all day. Take that take that hit all day. But throughout the course of a game, those things add up. And if you're controlling the football, it's almost like driving drunk. You know, one beer won't do you any harm. But you have multiple beers or multiple drinks, and now you have to drive behind the wheel. You're, you're, you're pretty much putting yourself and the people around you in harm's way. Same analogy in football if you constantly take those hits as a quarterback you're going to become more and more reckless with the football more and more lax in your reads and more and more uh, relaxed in protecting the football and then in turn you're going to turn the ball over you're going to make bad decisions and things just snowball after that so running awareness is huge for a quarterback I think and and finally toughness versus scariness you hear me talk about this a lot where I may say a quarterback is scary you know, and I'm not talking about a guy that's scared of conflict where, you know, if he's sitting at a at a bar or a pub or something like that and a guy comes up and pushes him on the shoulder that he won't fight him. No, I'm not talking about that type of scariness. I'm talking about fear in the pocket of getting hit. You know, that's a different type of scariness. We're talking about football scary where you don't want to take a hit, where you don't want to run and go that extra mile to get that first down when your team needs it and you're down by five. You know, being tough is standing in the pocket in the face of a double-A gap pressure, but you see that crossing route coming clean, coming open, breaking free, and you have to stand there a half a second longer to deliver this football accurately on the move, and you take that shot right in the chops, and you deliver the football, and it's a big game, big play in the passing game. You saw it last night with Drew Brees. A lot of quarterbacks are afraid to take that chance. They would rather throw off balance. Now the ball will sail. The defensive back that was trailing will catch up, pick it off, and then run it back for a touchdown. But if he would have stood there, took the hit, the ball would have got delivered. And, again, you have on pads. He's only going to hit you once. Take a shot, why don't you? You never know. You may complete a pass. You may become a hero. Yes, you may get hurt. However, that's something that you'd be willing to – I mean, your your adrenaline is pumping so hard that you're going to take that shot, that ball is going to get completed, the crowd is going to roar, teammates going to pick you up and, and – and slap you on the head and helmet and, and things of that nature, and, and you're ready to go for the next play. Now, you can't do that all the time, but in certain situations, you have to stand there and take that shot. And a lot of quarterbacks are scared of pressure. And when defensive coordinators figure out that you're scared of pressure, you're going to see a lot of blitzing. You're going to see a lot of stunts. And the, the funny part is you're so rattled about pressure that you're going to see pressure when there isn't any pressure, and you're going to sack yourself. And a guy, I hate to keep piling on a guy, but you saw that a lot with Tannehill. You see that a lot with Alex Smith. Those are the two guys, I think, that do a terrible job of managing pressure. So when defensive coordinators see these guys, they're going to constantly turn it up. They're going to blitz because these are the quarterbacks who are going to check pressure first and then get back to what they're supposed to do. By that time, the defense done shifted. The defense has changed in coverage. And now you don't know where you're going with the football. You hold it, and boom, now you're sacked. So that's where those things like awareness, that's five different things of awareness that I feel is very important for a quarterback to have when I'm looking at him. If he doesn't have awareness, I don't care about how strong your arm is. I don't care about, you know, how fast you run. Awareness is huge for me at that position.
Now let's move on to the running back position. And this is a position that I know quite very well, very, very well. I know this very well. And the one thing that bothers me about the position that I see nowadays is guys aren't natural runners anymore. I don't know if coaches are, are allowing guys to run naturally. The one guy that I like to watch run because he is a throwback to me um, to when you just put your best athlete back there in the backfield and let him run, and, and he was just one of the best guys, the best players on the field, and that's LaShawn McCoy. He he is the most uh, – what, what can we say? He is against the grain of how people are being coached now that you'll find in, in football. Um, but I'm going to talk about why the over-exaggeration of the high and tight. You know, you guys have seen it. Once Tiki Barber started doing the high and tight, holding the football by his heart, you know, and up close to his neck, um, every running back in America started to do it. I'm going to tell you why the over-exaggeration of that um, matters for a running back and why it's doing a detriment detriment to, to the position. Number one, it's unnatural uh, physically. Um, when you're running, let's say when you're just chasing someone, even without a football, how are you moving your arms, right? Up and down motion, right? Almost out to the side, a little wind getting underneath your arms, and you're, you're running. You got a good stride going. It's mechanical-like. Um, physically, it is natural how you run. You know, it's just you don't run with one arm not moving and other arm running, you know, in its normal motion. So the high and tight, forces a running back to to not run naturally because he's holding this football up near his chest, under his neck, and trying to make moves and trying to be a running back with one arm. So it's unnatural. You know, there's you can have your five pressure points. You lock it in between your index and your middle finger. You press it against your wrist. You slam it against your forearm. You tuck it right in your, into your elbow, and then you hold it right to your side now you can run with four pressure points and that's what you're really supposed to do so that way you're not running unnaturally run with your four pressure points and when contact comes or defender comes then you press it to five maybe even six if you want to put the your arm over top you know so four pressure points while you're running five and six when you're going inside a hole or you're coming upon contact or a defender this high and tight thing is, is making guys run stupid, is making guys run unnaturally, and it doesn't maximize your speed as a player. You know, you really are minimizing your ability to run faster because you're holding this football high and tight. Imagine how much faster you can run if you're running naturally with both arms and not one. You know, and it also neutralizes your, your lateral agility. It's tough to make a move east and west if you're holding the ball high and tight because you don't have balance. Think about why certain running backs are able to make certain moves. Think about LaShawn McCoy. Outside of his excellent ankle flexion, I know I make jokes about that, but that's exactly what it is. Outside of his excellent ankle flexion, his ability to be balanced as a runner, left to right, allows him to make moves. That's really how you make moves. You know, you have to be able to shift your weight left to right, and you can't do that naturally if you're holding the football high and tight. So I would say the solution to all of this is to hold it naturally. You know, look at it, look at the difference between a guy like a LaShawn McCoy, you know, like a uh, Eddie, Eddie Lacy, you know, like a Devonta Freeman who has tremendous explosiveness as opposed to, you know, a Derrick Henry 
or Trent Richardson, you know, or how Tiki Barber ran later in his career. I know he ran for a lot of yards, but he was just a natural runner. But he really left a lot of yards on the field because he was holding the football high and tight and he couldn't really make a, make one miss. I think holding the football high and tight like that, that over-exaggeration of high and tight, is what got David Wilson injured. Because once he fumbled the football and, and uh, Tom Coughlin put him in the doghouse and emphasized you got to hold on to the football in order to see the field, you know, all those good things you want to, you know, want a coach to tell you. Now he's over-exaggerating, holding the football high and tight. He's not running naturally. He's not balanced. He's not taking hits like he normally would have, like he's he's done his whole career, high school and college uh, at Virginia Tech. Now he's worried about protecting the football, and now he gets hurt and can't play football anymore. But when you see a guy running naturally, it's just better to watch. And these are nine times out of ten better running backs as a whole. So that over-exaggeration of high and tight I think does a lot of damage to the running back position. Just notice that. Just start to notice how many guys run high and tight and how many times you mark down lack of agility, struggles to make a guy miss in the hole, can't make that jump cut left or right, doesn't have that good balance, struggles to change direction. It's all because he's holding the football unnaturally and he's not able to run like a natural runner is supposed to run. And moving to the receiver position, why nuance matters for a wide receiver. And you hear me say this a lot talk about a guy that has played a lot of football you know what what I'm basically saying is a guy that has played a lot of unorganized football and you know a couple of guys come to mind um, when you watch them play you look at a Cordero Patterson you look at a Marquise Lee you look at an Odell Beckham you look at a Larry Fitzgerald um, you know look you look at a Jarvis Landry you know those are Des Bryant those are guys that you can say you know what he played a lot of football growing up because he's mastered the nuance. And a lot of times you see guys nowadays, and and it's just a, you know the sign of the times, guys are not playing enough unorganized football to where they've mastered the nuance. I think nuance is important for making somebody miss. It's important for a receiver. And it's also important for a cornerback. And if you're not getting that, you know, that type of, education early on and often as a as a kid and as an as a teenager then you know all you know is one way to play the position and so you can't figure out how to make it how to make adjustments like your routes for instance I, I was a receiver before I became a running back you know I gained 30 pounds after I tore my ACL and I moved to running back but I was a receiver and I played a lot of street football but I wasn't the fastest guy in my neighborhood right and so I knew in order to get open and in order to not run into this car that's parked on the street, I got to snap this this flag route off and then slam it flat as opposed to still running the flag toward the corner. Otherwise, I'll run into the car and the guy that's faster than me that's covering me would then be able to you know make a play on the ball or, or intercept it or something like that. So me being a slow guy, a slower guy, in playing in that situation, I learned how to, okay, this is how I can break this route off and still keep its integrity going and give the quarterback a, a flatter throw to make, and I trusted my hands to make that catch. You know, and if you're only taught one way to do things, then you can't mix what you've learned in unorganized football and, you know, combine that with what you learn, you know, technically on a football field. So let's say – if I only played organized football, I would have learned 
You never want to flatten out that flag route. You want to, you know, stem up, break it, you know, stem up to 10, break it to, you know, to five and, you know, just run on that angle. And I wouldn't be able to adjust. You also saw, and this was, I want to say maybe like two or three weeks ago. Maybe it was a Thursday. It was a Thursday night game. Uh, yeah, it was a Steelers and Ravens. Um, when you had Darren Waller going one-on-one with the corner and um, Flacco threw the ball up and Waller's a 6'6 receiver from Georgia Tech. And naturally, you just expect him, okay, he's going to, he he had a half a step on the, you know, on the corner, but the ball was on the throne and you just expected him to like slow down, readjust, jump and grab it at his highest point and come down with the big reception. He didn't do that. And that told me instantly that he wasn't a guy that played a lot of ball growing up, a lot of unorganized ball, because you can't coach that. You can't coach, okay, stop short and jump up and go grab the ball at his highest point. That's a natural thing that's just in you, you know, so, and, and that's instincts and you can't really coach instincts um, so in, on that play, he was a six, five guy that played small and it allowed the cornerback to be in great position to break up the pass. So you can't like certain things you can't teach and, and nuance matters. Nuance was the difference between Reggie, um, not Reggie, uh, between <laughs> Jerry Rice and, you know, a lot of these prospects you see coming out. And, and Rice will tell you, and I grew up with a lot of guys that played at uh, Carver High School, and they talked about how they caught bricks all the time. Coach was just Coach Jack Phillips is a tremendous coach at Carver High School. He threw bricks at these guys. You know, they caught bricks. Why? Because if you can catch a brick, <laughs> you can catch a football. But it's all about focus. It's all about, you know, making sure you catch it the right way so you don't cut your hands. Jerry Rice talked about that too. And so – teaching those guys a nuance and you I mean we constantly played a lot of football growing up and I don't think a lot of these guys nowadays play a lot of football so nuance matters for a receiver when you're talking about routes when you talk about catching judging and tracking a football look at Deshaun Jackson and how he judges and track a football and a lot of it can be attributed to his baseball background but even in a football sense tracking the football is 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 one of the most important traits you need as a receiver you know because Let's be honest. Everyone in the NFL is fast. Everyone in, in the NFL is, is able to cover. So what's going to separate you? You getting to the football, you jumping and catching it and bringing it down and, and, you know, making it happen. So a lot of guys can only catch a football if it's on them. And they can't, you know, if it's if I'm supposed to run this post 10 to 7 and the ball is not there, then, I, you know, I'm, I'm lost. The ball is supposed to be here. But guys that played a lot of football growing up, have that nuance of being able to track a bad ball. You may hear the term, you know, he's a a great bad ball catcher. That's all tracking. It doesn't have to be overhead tracking. It can be, okay, this ball is coming short behind me. Let me adjust my body. That that also ties into your athleticism. Let me slow down a little bit so I can reach back and grab this football. You know, one guy that does a great job, you could tell he, again, played a lot was Calvin Johnson. You saw how many bad balls he had to catch at Georgia Tech. You know, so – nuance really matters for a receiver. And that it also matters when you're running your routes and you see a guy that's able to give that subtle chuck in the hip of a defensive back, you know, or that subtle, like, hit on his on his hip and then come back for the football. You know, that's nuance. That's how you create that little slight piece of separation. You don't have to blatantly push a guy off you. You can give him a little, shuttle, uh, a little uh, subtle 
nudge with your elbow, a closed chicken wing, so to speak, and come back for the football. Create a little separation. Even if you're running a route and you take a little inside release and you, you're with a, a cornerback that has size and has the speed and athleticism to, to overtake you and come and catch this football for an interception, when the ball is in the air and, you're, and you guys are going up to get it, what do you do? You post them up. And how you post them up, you're playing. And we used to call this a turtle shell because you're, you're jumping up at its highest point, but you're arching your back a little bit to where you're leaning into the defensive back subtly to where it's not noticeable that you're boxing him out or pushing him away from the ball. But you're creating that separation from the defender, yourself, and the football. So now as you arch your back a little bit, and you have your little foot kick back a little bit as well, you're creating a barrier to where he can't come over top of you and make a play. Now you have the full freedom to reach at his highest point and grab the football. That's the little nuance you see from receivers that have played a lot of ball. You know, it's subtle, but you can tell that he's pushing off without pushing off. And that's the things that you that you see, you know. And, again, size is not a skill, so you don't have to be 6'5 to play a ball like that. You could be 5'9". Steve Smith does a great job of that. He wins a lot of 50-50 balls by doing those little things that you see guys have done growing up. It's about nuance at that position. And you can say the same thing for the tight end position, the nuance in the route running. You don't have to be an explosive tight end. You just have to get open, show your numbers, catch the football, and then you do your damage, which is why you see guys like a Jason Witten, you know, guys like a uh, who's a um, Antonio Gates, you know, like a Tony Gonzalez, you know, just get open. Make sure your routes are where they're supposed to be and how they are, and that's how you're able to be effective. And, again, you see guys like Witten. Witten probably runs a 8-6 in a 40-yard dash, but he is always open and people can't cover him. So it's all about, you know, one, you have to master your blocking. But I think routes are very important for a tight end because you don't even have to do much. You just have to make sure you're in position to make the play. You're a big-body guy, and nine times out of ten, you've probably played basketball growing up you know, in high school or middle school, something like that. So you had, have had post-experience, so you know how to position yourself and keep the defender away from you. But the nuance in your routes, you know, you don't have to be the fastest guy in and out of your breaks. That helps, but you don't have to be if you're a tight end. Your game is just about positioning. You get good position on the, defend, on the defender that doesn't have, you know, the best coverage experience, and you're going to make a lot of plays. So I think nuance, not only for a receiver, and I'm all of those things, all of those things I mentioned for a receiver, for a tight end, I think it's all about how you nuance your routes, you know, and how quickly you're able to get, you know, to a spot, set up, post up, and make a play. How you're able to effectively wall off a linebacker, you know, keep him away from the ball. Slow yourself down to where the guy now has to play through you, which is a penalty, but you still have great position to where you can box him out and catch the football. All of those little nuances matter for both a receiver and for a tight end. And moving along the offensive line, you look at the offensive tackle position. Why understanding angles matter for an offensive tackle? One, it saves you from overextending. Too often you see guys tend to overextend, which means that they're susceptible to counter moves and guys are able to beat them inside, beat them across their face. So if you understand an angle, you can beat the defender to the spot. You stay balanced. You, it keeps you in better position, and it helps you be more effective and efficient as an offensive tackle. It also saves energy, and it maximizes that efficiency. Too often you see guys want to beat the um, defensive end to the edge 
or to the spot. They they get out out of their uh their kick step pretty quickly, and they try to get out there on the outside, try to race them going backwards. All you're doing is setting yourself up for a double move to beat you inside and get to the quarterback. But if you're understanding angles, you're doing a great job in beating that guy to a certain spot where he's trying to go, not where he's headed. But you cut him off right there, and you're able to stay balanced. You don't overextend, and you maximize your own uh, efficiency. Now, for a guard, I think hands matter, and, and that's what I want to talk about when you look at the interior offensive line, but just guards in particular, uh, why hands matter. Um, and You always hear me say hands first. Guy's got his hands first. You get your hands on the guy first. Nine times out of ten, you're going to win that battle, and it, it keeps you balanced. Again, it's about playing balance. If you're able to, to reach a guy, touch a guy first, now you can reset your feet and you stay in a good football position. It also allows you to effectively counter any move that he's going to bring or uh, throw your way. So not only are you staying in good position, you're able to effectively counter. It keeps you in a position of control and in a position of strength. So when you're balanced, when your base is, is set properly as a guard, and, and that's why I really like Gabe Jackson a lot uh, two draft classes ago because he was one of those guys that did everything exceptionally well. He understood, okay, I'm going to win first with my hands. I'm going to stay balanced. I'm in a position to control always, whether it be run blocking or pass blocking, and you find yourself being able to move guys consistently off the spot. Now, for a center, I, I do think eyes matter a lot. One is it's an obvious one because it keeps you alert for stunts and games that you're going to you know, come across that you can adjust readily on the fly. It also allows you to play with controlled aggressiveness because if you can see it coming and you know, okay, I'm going to help chip with this this three-tech right here, but I see this looping five-tech coming into this hole, I can now aggressively block this three-tech or help out with the three-tech, make sure he's passed off effectively to the guard. Then now I can switch on uh, – now I can switch on this um, stunt that's coming around in my you know weak side or, or backside A-gap to where I can effectively adjust and pick up that block as well. But your eyes have to be in unison. Also, pre-snap, because you have to understand what possibly could be coming your way. And you as a center, just as important as the quarterback, you have to really be able to diagnose and, uh, and alert the rest of the guys along that offensive line of the different calls that, that – um, so, so everyone is getting blocked properly up front. So everyone is accounted for. So your eyes have to be really on point. I guess eyes, when I say, you know, when I say eyes, I'm talking about, you know, a, a guy understanding what he's seeing at that level. Because that, everyone has perception. Um, their perspective is different on a football field. So what you see as a receiver is going to be different than what you see as a as an offensive lineman, as a center, as a fullback, as a tailback. You have to be able to see it from your perspective and then diagnose. So speaking from a center's perspective, what he sees is um, obviously important to the rest of the guys, especially on the interior of that offensive line. So that's why I think seeing the field or seeing the fronts well and also being able to understand what they're trying to do and down in distance. So your eyes, when I, I'm not talking to, talking about physically your eyes, but you're, you know, metaphorically speaking, your eyes have to be where they need to be, uh, almost like a quarterback if you're going to be an effective center. Moving over to the defensive side of the football, looking at defensive ends, you know, why playing with length matters for a defensive end because you got to be able to see uh, what's going on, be, you know, in front of you. And if you're not playing with great length, you're going to be, you're going to find yourself not involved in a play. So you have to be able to extend, and that doesn't mean you have to be a six-five guy 
playing, you know, with the length of a 6'8 guy. You can even be a 6'1 guy. You just have to be able to extend, be able to see, and be able to control because length gives you a chance, and that's versus the run and versus the pass. Otherwise, when you look at, you know, someone that's not playing with length, they tend to get inside of an offensive lineman. Their hands are all over the place. They're, they, they've sacrificed their chest. They're, they're not in a position of control. They tend to get washed down. They tend to get combo blocked on the way, uh, you know, out the, out the gate. Um so playing with length allows you to see what's going on. It gives you a chance. And, again, it's all about staying in a position of control. And, again, like I said, it doesn't matter if you're tall or short. Now, for a defensive tackle, why being stout matters for a defensive tackle. And, again, most of your battles as a defensive tackle are versus double teams or combo blocks. So you have to be stout. Otherwise, they will make you – They will, you'll find yourself going from a defensive tackle to safety. That's how far back they'll drive you down the field. So you have to be able to be stout to be a defensive tackle because, again, most of your battles are versus double teams and combo blocks, and the offense can't run where they can't move someone off the spot. So if you're able to hold your own at the point of attack, as the, as the phrase goes, the offense can't run that way. It, it becomes bottled up in the backfield, and the running back has to find a different path to take. So, again, that's two reasons why being stout matters. And it also allows you to disengage better because when you're you're stout and you're not able to be moved off the spot, you then, again, remain in that position of control. You have a position of strength, and now you're able to utilize your hands to get a guy off you. You see where the ball is going, quote-unquote playing with length, and now you're able to make a move and get into the backfield or chase a runner down. Um, and make a play. That's where length matters as well for a defensive end um, in pursuit as far as like chasing a quarterback or chasing the ball carrier. So being stout for a defensive tackle I think is huge. Now for a linebacker, for an outside backer, let's say, let's let's go outside first. I would say um, why athleticism matters because the outside linebacker position I think is a unique one because it's a position of sudden change. You have to be able to move you know, constantly. You're starting forward. Then you have to stop and redirect backwards. Then you have to plant and accelerate laterally. So you're constantly moving, and it's a position of sudden change. And if you're a bad athlete, you're going to find yourself constantly injured. You're only going to be able to do one thing. Let's say one guy, you know, is a pass rusher, and he's not necessarily a great athlete. All he's going to be able to do is get after the quarterback. You can't get creative with him. You don't really want him on a field all three down. So athleticism matters for an outside backer because of the constant movement that you will have to have and uh, you will have to do and also what, what the position requires. Sometimes you may have to get after the quarterback. Sometimes you may have to anchor versus the run. Sometimes you may have to follow a tight end or back in a route. And if you can't move in all directions athletically, you're, you're one-dimensional. So I think athleticism is huge for outside linebacker. That's one of the first things that I look for when I'm looking at the position. Now, for, for the inside guys, I think – I'm going to have to really break this one down. I would say want to matters a lot for an inside linebacker. And, and when I say want to, I, I think the best way to describe want to um, is the difference between a TFL and a 10-yard run tackle, you know, a tackle after a 10-yard run. You know, a guy that wants to hit. And, and want to will get you through the trash. Want to will get you through all of the bodies on the ground because you're going to find your way to the football if you really want to make a play on the ball carry. Some uh, again, a lot of a lot of guys nowadays are wait and see linebackers, these peekaboo linebackers, you know, they want to, you know, drag and, and wrap up 10 yards down the field. You have to want 
to stop the run. And if you're an inside backer, you have to really want to make that happen. I would also like to draw the analogy of, let's say you're in the mall and someone steals your wallet, right? Or let's say you walk in with your lady friend and someone steals her purse and is running through the through a crowded mall and you have to chase him. You're, you're chasing him with all intent and purposes of putting him on the ground. And you're running in a crowded mall, yet you find yourself running full speed. You're avoiding people. You're weaving in and out of traffic. You know, you're avoiding obstacles that may be on the ground because you're in dead pursuit of that guy that has stolen your wallet or has stolen your girlfriend's purse. That's what tackling is, and that's what want to is. And a lot of backers don't have that these days. A lot of inside backers don't have that. That's why when you see one, you stand up out your chair, and you're like, wow, this guy can play. That's the type of inside linebacker I want. That's why I want to matters. And a lot of backers, it's rare to find these days because of the spread offenses. And so the field the spread and guys are more in coverage as opposed to playing downhill. But when you find that backer that can't play downhill, that's the one you want. That's why I think want to matters for an inside linebacker. Now, going outside on the flanks um, at the cornerback position, I would say patience matters the most. For a cornerback, it matters when you press a guy because you don't want to get over aggressive and try to jam a guy right away and he makes a move. Now you've pushed all that energy in one direction and it's going to be tough for you to recover because he, now he has a, a half a step. And if he's even, he's leaving. So being patient patient with your press and your bump techniques are, are huge. I remember I made this comment uh, last Senior Bowl, this past Senior Bowl, about Josh Shaw. You know, saw it at the Senior Bowl. You saw it at the East-West Shrine game, how patient his punch was, which is why it landed 95% of the time. He was able to redirect and stay in a position of control. You know, your patience also helps you as a corner as far as jumping routes. You don't have to aggressively jump all the routes. Just wait until you see the, the ball is getting ready to leave that quarterback's hands. Then you break on that route. So one thing you see corners do nowadays, you see a lot of guys tend to want to, you know, if the receiver makes an end break, they want to, hurry up and close but then the receiver breaks right back out and now you're stuck in the mud and you can't get out of that transition so if you're patient and realize that the your, your job as a corner yes you're watching the receiver but once that ball is in the air you go get the ball and you don't have to play aggressively until you see that ball leave the quarterback's hand so you can be patient as far as jumping routes you can be patient versus the outside run a lot of guys will fly to the outside and try to set the edge you can slow play inside out if you're a corner you can only do that if you're patient, and that'll cause confusion as a running back because let's say if I'm running with the football and I'm going off tackle and I see the cornerback fly up and pick a side, I then now know as a, as a runner where I can go. But if I see an ambiguous guy, he kind of ambiguous in where he wants to go, he's kind of slow playing in and out, and that's causing me as a runner to hesitate, and then he finally sets the edge. By that time, the backside pursuit then caught up with me and put me on the ground. So being patient versus the outside run is, is also, you know, huge for a corner. Turning and finding the football, you don't have to turn too early to find the football. You can wait to the last possible minute as long as you get your head around. And 10 times out of 10, you get your head around, you're going to find yourself making a play on the ball um, and, and playing the ball in the air. You see a lot of guys want to jump early. That's one of the worst things I, I've seen uh, outside of not turning your head around for the ball. But one of the worst things I've seen you know, from cornerbacks is guys that jump early. Just be patient. And a, and a lot of times, if a receiver jumps first, you can wait a half a second before you jump too because now 
that's about timing. Again, that's where the patient comes into play because you jump a half a second late, you're at the you're still ascending while he's going to slowly start to descend. And now that puts you right at an equal level. You have the momentum now to make that play because you're you're going up and he's coming down. That's how you aggressively play the football. You can be patient as far as when you jump. You don't have to jump as soon as he does. Patience is is huge for a cornerback. That allows you to make more plays. So if when you look at Darrell Revis, I think he's probably one of the most patient cornerbacks in the game. Richard Sherman is probably more patient as well. At times, he does get aggressive, and that's why he gets caught with double moves and things of that nature. But for the most part, he's a patient player. That's a smart player. That's a guy that's that that's whose football IQ is where it needs to be. Now, for a safety, I think acceleration matters the most. Um, I guess they call it range, but it's it's essentially you know shrinking space horizontally and vertically. And if you can do that quickly, you're going to shrink it downhill as far as filling the alley versus the run. Like I just described for a cornerback playing patient, um, for a safety, if you can close that space quickly, the running back has to make a quick decision, and nine times out of ten, they don't want to make that decision right then and there. Um, and obviously going sideline to sideline, uh, helping out cornerbacks, you're able to shrink that space that way. The quarterback has a small window to fit the football through. The cornerback realizes that he can be even more aggressive because he has a guy on the back end that can eliminate mistakes. So – Having that acceleration, and you could be a 4-6 guy and be a great safety. You don't have to be necessarily a 4-2 guy. But if you can get to your 4-6 faster than the guy can get to his 4-2, I want you back there on the back end. You're eliminating mistakes, and acceleration kind of ties into your football IQ and instincts. Um, because if you can if you can see it, you can get there quicker than a guy that, that's faster than you. Um, but you have to have – you have to be able to accelerate, you know, to – Put that, put the uh, pedal down to the to the floor, and get to your top speed, and eliminate that mistake in the passing game, or shrink that space in a running game. So we're gonna take a short break. I ran through all those positions, guys, and we're gonna come back and wrap up the show on the back end of the direct snap. Uh, man, you know it's it's that old thing, you know, perseverance, consistency, hard work. You know what I mean? My goal is to put the same work into, you know, my businesses, my family that I put into football, you know, and, and I've been running with that mantra since, you know, since I got married back in 97, you know, that if I'm going to have a successful marriage, I got to, you know, the same hard work and same consistency and discipline I had in the football field, I got to put in my marriage and with my kids and with my with my businesses and all that. So uh, it teaches you a lot, man, you know, how to deal with your fellow man and not look at him to his color, but look at you know, what he can do for the overall good of what you're trying to accomplish, you know. So, uh, it, you know, sports to me in general is just an incredible deal when you, when you talk about football specifically because of uh, the closeness of guys. I, I just believe it's an amazing sport. And welcome back to Direct Snap. I'm Emory Hunt, the czar of the playbook. And you can find those two books, What Did Football Teach Me and Football, A Love Story, and also stiff-arming football myths on our website at footballgameplan.com slash books. I recommend you guys get all three of those books. The latter two, Football, A Love Story and What Did Football Teach Me, are two excellent books that we came out with. Over 100 interviews from current and former coaches, players, executives, entertainers, you know, about the game. You know, guys like Brett Billima, Ross Tucker, uh, Doc Holliday of Marshall, uh, Terry Bowden of, of Akron, Mike Singletary, Howard Mudd, all, the, all of those guys talking about their experiences 
in in a game of football. What did the game teach them? Why they love the love the game so much, and and you know why they find themselves staying in the game. These are great reads, guys. So I would suggest you check those out again on our website at footballgameplan.com/books. Now, as we wrap up the show, you know I always have some type of rant that uh, about something that bothered me this past week, and the one thing that just stands out to me the most and. I guess this just didn't happen last week. It has always happened. I just don't understand the media shade that that's given to non-star football players. It seems like the me, the major media and some of the fan media, um, you know, bloggers and, and uh, you know, guys that have websites, you know, that if you're not a star player, then they don't treat you with respect. They talk, they talk bad about you. They talk about how you suck and, you know, how you're insignificant. You know, I just find that troubling because, you know, the league is of what over 1500 players and you have a bunch of guys that are, you know, that have lived, you know, their whole lives trying to get to this point and to have someone essentially shit on it is just, you know, it's just tough to see each and every Sunday. Yeah. You may only be a practice squad player. Yeah. You may only be a third string tight end that comes in on kickoff return or whatever it may be, but you're playing in the NFL. You know, yeah, you may be a second string guy that may not have the skills of the of the starter. You may not be a superstar, but you're a contributor. You know, that person gets trashed in the media. I just think is I, I just don't understand. How can you cover a game that you really deep down in your core you don't really like? You don't really like a lot of people don't like the players that they cover. I've I just find it amazing. There's so many people in the media that are credentialed, that are, you know, have TV shows, that have radio shows, that cover the game of football, that don't give a damn about the players, and don't necessarily really like the game. So I just don't understand how that works. And it, it just it just bothers me because you have let's say someone like myself who's super passionate about the game, who loves the game, who appreciates every piece of the game from the practice squad players to the walk-ons in college to the guy that in high school that just going to play high school ball that may not have played a lot but he's a guy that just out there he wants to play because he loves the game every little bit of it you know so when someone says oh you know that's just an arena player like go play an arena they, they you know he couldn't even make an arena league team like no don't 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 say that because there's guys in the arena league you know that are really talented and also if you're getting paid, you're a professional. So you're talking about a professional football player. I don't care if you're getting a million dollars or a thousand dollars. You're playing. You're a professional. And it was, one article that really jumped out to me was the Mike Florio article on Pro Football Talk about Josh Freeman, how he talked about Freeman's first game with the Brooklyn Bolts. But the one thing that he left out was how that Friday night, and I was at a game Friday night. I was at Princeton, Columbia, and there was no passing going on. Why? Because it was a fucking monsoon out there. So when you look at that game, and I had the game on ESPN3 up on my laptop while I was in the press box, you saw, you know, there was nothing no one on offense can do. So, yes, you saw a bunch of fumbles. Yes, you saw interceptions. And I'm not saying, you know, he couldn't have made those plays, couldn't have made better plays. But at the end of the day, you have to take that weather into consideration of how bad everyone played. And But that wouldn't have fit in the narrative that, you know, he wanted to set for Josh Freeman. Oh, see, this guy is stupid. He can't play. He's dumb. He's terrible. Look, he can't even make it in the FXFL where there's reject football players. Like, that's two wrongs in that statement. 
You know, I just feel as though if you're going to cover the game of football, make sure you like the game. I mean, that's why you don't see a, a tennis game plan.com, a track and field game plan.com. You will see a basketball game plan.com. No, I tell you that, you know, in baseball, but you don't see me knock those sports. You don't see me knock players. If I don't like it, I ain't talking about it, you know, but I just find it amazing. I don't know how people do it. You know, maybe there's some amazing actors out there that, that people really hate this game of football, uh, but they can't get away from it, I guess, because it pays the bills. So if you hate something that much, yet you don't want to leave it alone. If I hated the way if I hated this game, the way people in the major media hate this game, I wouldn't cover it. But I guess, you know, some people are a glutton for punishment. They can't leave the game alone and they'll say, oh, I love football. No, you don't. You like what football maybe affords you, um, but you don't like the game because if you did, you treat the game a little bit better and you definitely care about the players that are putting their lives on the line, you know, because, you know, the medical risks from play, you know from playing this game you'll treat them with much more respect and not treat them as as you know objects or treat them as you should be lucky I'm talking about you like like man go sit down with all that man i i just really hate seeing that because you see it at games the games i go to you see people that's there that don't really want to be there they're constantly complaining about the school they're constantly complaining about the guys on the field they they're saying things like oh these guys ain't going to go pro Oh, these guys ain't gonna these guys ain't gonna amount to nothing. They they're terrible. Like that that's what I hate. And you see that a lot from the NFL level all the way down to the high school level. I mean, how many times I mean, think about today. They've spent more time today talking about Colin Kaepernick and what uh Clay Matthews told him. They're also talking about what you know Ryan Tannehill's teammates said about him. And no one's talking about the game. There's a big game tonight. There's a Monday night football game tonight. No one's talking about it because they'd rather talk about this sensational trash that I guess that they rather, you know, if they love the game, you know, this is what they would rather talk about. This is not that part of the game has no place uh, in, in the media. I don't know. I, I Maybe I'm different. Maybe I'm quote unquote old fashioned. I just hate bullshit and nonsense. I think it doesn't do anyone. I remember I used to pick up a paper or, you know, go and, pick up a magazine or turn on a radio and, and hear information about my team growing up information. And now I hear nonsense and I would never try to give that to the fans. I'm always trying to educate. I'm always trying to inform. I'm always trying to encourage the fan or the listener to stay woke as they like to say, because there's a lot of BS being put out there right now. And, um, and it's so flooded with BS that a lot of the good stuff that's out there from people aren't getting this just due. So make sure you do the right by foot do right by football. Talk about it in the right way. Talk about the players in the right way because that will pay itself back uh tenfold and and those guys will definitely appreciate it and the game will then appreciate you. So that's it for this episode of the Rex Snap. You can find it archived at footballgameplan.com slash podcast. Hit me up on Twitter at Fball Game Plan, Instagram Vine, Football Game Plan. We got a lot of great stuff coming out down the pike with football game plan and its subsidiaries. I always wanted to say that, and I found a way to slide it into this uh, podcast. But I'm Emory Hunt, this is the Playbook, and that has been Direct Snap. Have you ever felt? Are you listening? Damn.